It's Tuesday night and Blue Apron can help. Dishes such as paprika spice shrimp and cheddar grits with tomato and sweet corn or maybe a spicy hoisin chicken stir-fry with baby bok choy and sesame ginger cucumber salad. And you pay less than $10 per meal per person. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by simply going to blueapron.com ATK. That's blueapron.com ATK. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. America's Test Kitchen is supported by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. And I should know, since I use Squarespace, I'm not an art director, a computer programmer, even an IT specialist. It's simple, it's beautiful, and it works. And Squarespace also delivers on what makes it work behind the scenes. There are sophisticated e-commerce tools, including tracking inventory, processing orders, and sending custom emails. They also offer 24-7 customer support. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com kitchen to get 10% off your first purchase. Try Squarespace today and launch a new website tomorrow. This is Christopher Kimball. Thank you for downloading this week's podcast. You can head over to our website, which is atkradio.com. We post our recipes, equipment reviews, taste test results, and also our wine recommendations. Enjoy this week's show. This is America's Test Kitchen from the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org, and I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. The cookbook, A Treasury of Great Recipes, was co-authored by Vincent and Mary Price in 1965. It's now the eighth most popular out-of-print book in the entire world. The happy couple traveled the globe. They reproduced recipes from famous restaurants, from trains and clubs, everything from Kahlua Pig to French Toast Santa Fe. That was from the railroad. But Vincent Price's most famous food moment may be his appearance on Johnny Carson, where he steamed a fish in a dishwasher. You can poach a fish in a dishwasher. And he said it was delicious. And it's funny. It's one of the things that is most remembered about my dad. Oh, my God, he cooked a fish in a dishwasher. That was Victoria Price. We'll hear more from Victoria later in the show. Right now, it's time to hear from our gadget guru, Lisa McManus. Today in the test kitchen, I have two kitchen gadgets, one that's hot and one that's not. First, the hot one. In the test kitchen, we like to use a wooden spoon to scoop up foods and to scrape up all the flavorful brown bits in the pan when we're making soups or stews or pan sauces. And we use a flexible spatula to fold in ingredients and to swipe bowls clean. Now there's a tool called a spoonula. It's a mashup of spoon and spatula, not as deep as a spoon or as flat as a spatula. We were kind of skeptical till we tried this one. It's called the Starpak Premium Silicone Spoonula. It really works. Ours is bright red silicone. It's all one piece so it can't fall apart, and it's easy to clean. Feels very comfy, nice and grippy in your hand. Its head has the perfect balance of stiffness and flexibility, so it's strong enough to scrape up fond, but can also really bend into the corners of pots and bowls so it can swoop around and get every last bit of food and it's just deep enough to work as a spoon, too. I find myself reaching for it in the test kitchen even over our winning spoon or spatula. It's $8.49, and that's a real bargain for a workhorse like this. And now for a gadget that didn't work. Now, having a salt container near the stove makes it really easy to season a steak or a pot of boiling water on the fly. We wanted a container that would be sturdy, it should hold a useful amount of salt, it should be easy to fill and grab from, and it should protect the salt from kitchen splatter and from clumping when it's damp. The Le Creuset salt crock looked like it was going to hold a lot of salt and be great. It's a classic salt pig. It's a cylinder about five inches across, five inches high. It's got a covered opening on one side, kind of like a periscope. This just did not work out. It's got a very low front wall that limited how much salt it could actually hold. We even had to turn it on its side to fill it. And the fairly small opening made it a huge pain for anyone with large hands to get their hands in. While it provided a little more protection for your salt than an open bowl would, this is just an awkward design. For $35, you can skip the Le Creuset salt crock. So, the Starpak Premium Silicone Spoonula for $8.49, that's hot. But the Le Creuset salt crock for $35, save your money, that is not. You're listening to America's Test Kitchen. You can find today's show and all of our weekly shows at our website, atkradio.com, and also on iTunes. 
At our site, we also post our weekly recipes, reviews, tastings, and taste test results. Now it's time for this week's Kitchen Tip. Here's a question we get all the time. Does it really matter if you sift your flour before you measure it or after? Well, the answer is yes, it does matter. When a recipe calls for, quote, one cup sifted flour, unquote, the flour should be sifted before measuring, whereas one cup flour, comma, sifted should be sifted after measuring. Now here's why. A cup of flour sifted before measuring will weigh 20 to 30% less than a cup of flour sifted after measuring, a difference that can make a huge impact on the texture of a finished baked foods. So the best way to make sure you've got the right amount of flour, weigh it. Now it's time to open up our phone lines, take a few of your calls. And with me, of course, is our culinary expert, Bridget Lancaster. How are you, Bridget? I'm fabulous. <laughs> I Gee. feel fabulous. Super fine and fabulous. <laughs> time to uh, take a few calls. You ready? I am. Welcome to America's Test Kitchen. Who's calling? This is Dennis. Hi, Dennis. Where are you calling from? Uh, Lacey, Washington. Lacey, Washington. Where is that? Right outside the Capitol. It's in Washington. I know that, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't listen to the guy. Oh, he's you know? starting in so early. I know, I know. Dennis, uh, save me. How can we help you? I was kind of looking for your opinion on vegetable wash. Vegetable wash? Are you talking about commercial vegetable washes? Yeah, yeah. We have a garden. We do not recommend any of the commercial ones. You can just use three parts water to one part white vinegar. Keep it in oh. a spray bottle, spray your produce, then rinse it under cold water. Well, can, I, can I ask a question? Yep. So... <laughs> Bridget hates yeah. it when I do it. Yeah, if you have to. <laughs> so what is that vinegar doing? Are you, is just better at taking commercial herbicides and other sprays off the vegetables? The vinegar is yeah. killing the bacteria. But don't you kill bacteria uh, when you cook things? Well, for fruit, say you wanted to cut up a cantaloupe or something like that, you would spray the outside with your wash. Oh, Lord. It's like, come on, <laughs> really? I'm going to spray, you're telling me to spray so the haven't... outside of a melon. With a vinegar-based well, spray. Different. If I was going to cook it, I wouldn't worry about it. I don't but... tend to lick the rind of a cantaloupe. Oh, my gosh. Come on. Well, it, you know what? You don't have to. When you draw that knife I through know, the outside, know, you're I pulling know. that bacteria yeah. right like, through. I live dangerously. Have you not watched the news lately, Chris? <laughs> have, have you? Okay. Have you actually, be honest now, have you actually sprayed the outside of cantaloupe ever? That five-second I'm going to spray the outside of you with it in a minute. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I have a lot of bacteria on me. It'd be pretty good. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, thanks for Dennis. Calling. Right, bye-bye. Welcome to America's Test Kitchen. Who's calling? Hi, this is Deb Baxley from Rye, New York. Now can we help you? My main question is, somebody recently gave me this lovely, it's an Imperia pasta machine made in Italy. Mm-hmm. I used it and made wonderful egg pasta. I used your recipe. But I try and stay off of processed carbs, so I tried using the exact same recipe with whole wheat flour. <laughs> and that was an interesting experience because... I eventually got about half of the dough through the machine, and those noodles were pretty good. But the rest of the dough I just had to throw away because it just kept breaking apart. I couldn't get it through the machine. That's true, because whole wheat flour does not absorb liquid as readily as all-purpose flour. That's not as elastic. Now, you might be able to substitute 20%. You can try a little bit, 15 20%, but all-purpose flour has more gluten and absorbs liquid. So that's why it doesn't work. It'll just fall apart on you. As it did. So you think my only alternative is to go up to about 20% whole wheat? I just baked with someone uh, who used to cook with Alice Waters, and, and she made some wonderful desserts, all with 100% rye flour, but they're sort of loaf cakes, and you don't have to worry about it. A pasta machine, as you know, the texture is really important. Mm-hmm. So I, I try 15 or 20%. You might get away with that. Okay. But 100%, as you just found out, is... Crumbly. Yeah, and, and you need that elasticity to go through the machine, the rollers. All right. Thank you very much. I'll give that a shot. Our pleasure. Excellent. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is America's Test Kitchen. I'm Christopher Kimball here with our culinary expert, Bridget Lancaster. Give us a ring anytime. That number is 855-34-COOKS. Once again, 855-34-COOKS or email us at questions at atkradio.com. Now it's time for another call. This is Rena Giftopoulos from South Boston, Massachusetts. So how can we help you? Well, I am calling because I love to make blueberry pies, and I've noticed frequently when I add blueberries, either make a blueberry pie by itself or add it with other berries or other fruits, there's sometimes almost like a bitter flavor that comes from the blueberries. I think it might be tannins. I don't know what it is. It sometimes 
comes at the end of the taste of the bite of the pie, and sometimes it's not there. And I'm wondering if you know what it is and if you have a foolproof way to not have it, because it's kind of like a, it makes you want to smack your lips. And it, I, can't, I can't really describe it, but I think it's from the blueberries. Are these small, like wild main blueberries? These are big, juicy, plump blueberries. What kind are they? Probably big, juicy, plump blueberries. A couple of things. One might be that the blueberries were not ripe enough when they were picked. Blueberries really need time to ripen in the bush before they're picked. A lot of the big berries that you find at the supermarket, I can pick up that same kind of bitter, tannic, sour taste. They're similar to cranberries where they have the, the polyphenols and, you know, it's good for you, but it can give you that bitter flavor. A couple of things, if you can find the small, main, wild blueberries, they tend to be sweeter. And the other thing, make sure you're adding a little bit of salt to mm. your pie filling. Oh, okay. I don't add salt to the that, pie That'll filling. balance the bitterness. Yeah, it, salt is pretty magic for taking away a lot of that bitter, sour flavor that you might be picking up on. I just find those big blueberries, they're watery. They don't really have... They're bitter water. Is... Yeah, they don't have much flavor at all. That's why that bitterness comes through, mm -hmm. because it's not being balanced by something you'd like. But the salt should help. Okay, so if I'm committed to making a blueberry pie and I can only find the supermarket blueberries, just add maybe like a quarter of a teaspoon of salt? Maybe just an eighth of a an teaspoon. An eighth of a teaspoon, yeah. There's okay. something else you can do, which I do, which is make a galette, which simply means there's no pie plate. You roll out a 12-inch round of dough, put a couple cups of blueberries in the middle, sprinkle some sugar over the top, a tiny bit of salt, fold up the edges so a good part of the blueberries are still open and exposed. And that really reduces the blueberries down. And it's a lot of that water disappears, unlike the filling of a pie. Oh. And you get a more concentrated taste. That's one way to get a better flavor. The great thing about doing that or pre-cooking your blueberry pie filling before you put it in your pie is you can taste the filling before it goes into your dessert. So you can always adjust the seasonings oh, at like that a, point. Not, it's not this giant mystery. Okay. Exactly. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for taking my call. Yeah, pleasure. I'm listening to you. I'm a huge fan. Thanks. Thank you, so you much. too. Happy pie season. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to America's Test Kitchen. You can find today's show and all of our weekly shows on iTunes and also on our very own website, atkradio.com. We also post our recipes, tastings, and testings. Coming up after the break, it's all about the cooking of Vincent Price. Horror movies may have paid his bills, but Vincent and Mary Price traveled the world reproducing recipes from the top-rated eateries from Paris to Rome. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to America's Test Kitchen. Hello, I'm Vincent Price. Today I'm going to take you on a slight tour of the Mediterranean. These are the places that the people of Europe and North America go for their holidays. Oh, not to see the country, but to stay in standardized hotels overlooking standardized beaches with standardized people on them. But you ask them what they ate there and they'll reel off a list that sounds pretty much what they eat at home. I can tell you it's all very depressing. That was Vincent Price from his cooking show, Cooking Pricewise. Vincent and Mary love to travel and love to cook, and oddly enough, their 1965 cookbook, A Treasury of Great Recipes, has become a collector's item. In its pages, one finds recipes from La Tour d'Argent, Taiwan, The Four Seasons, and even breakfast offerings from the Santa Fe Railroad. Their daughter, Victoria, has celebrated the 50th anniversary edition of this book by traveling back to many of the places her parents visited a half century before. I started by asking her to describe the book. The premise of the book was that they were collectors of experience. And so they went all over the world traveling for my dad's work, but they also collected recipes from uh, restaurants all over the world. And they came back and they figured out how to make a lot of those recipes. In those days, the ingredients that you could get in Europe were very different than what you could get here. So they figured out how to make them. They recreated the experiences, not just the food, but my mother would come back with design elements, whole sets of plates or, or linens, and they would 
create the experience for their friends in wonderful dinner parties. And that was the impetus behind the book. So this is 1965, and, and there are a lot of things I love about the book, especially the menus, because like the Tour d'Argent or the Four Seasons at the time, I, and I, I like the fact there was the Santa Fe Super Chief breakfast menu, um, which is... And that was actually one of our favorite things to do. Yeah. We would, my brother, who's 22 years older than I am, lived in New Mexico, and we would take the Super Chief to visit him. And it was the most amazing thing because the train would pull into Flagstaff about 6 a.m., so you woke up, and then you spent the next two hours in the beautiful dining car, the white starched linen tablecloths and napkins, and the sterling silver dinnerware, and then the beautiful plates looking out at the painted desert going by while eating breakfast. And breakfast was this French toast that was... A, good, but B, made better by the ambiance. And that really was my mother's philosophy of the book, that um, ambiance is as important as the food. So she said, gourmet is where you find it, and ambiance makes the occasion. Charming. I mean, where did all the charming people go? Uh, I think they, right? they're, they're I no longer with us. Um, no, the, they don't make them like my parents no. anymore. Uh, the French toast, I looked at that recipe. It uses cream, not milk, of course. Of course. But it fries the French toast is cooked in a quarter cup oil, which is really, I, actually, that's something I would like to try. I bet you get a much crisper outer crust. Um, the, the other recipe in that section, the Santa Fe Super Chief Breakfast, the Harvey Girl Special Little Thin Orange Pancakes uses orange juice, uh, actually freshly squeezed orange juice, grated rind, and a quarter cup of segments with pancake mix. And uh, that sounds pretty interesting, too. I mean, if you actually look at these these recipes, a lot of them are just really fascinating. So it's 1965, though, and this is the, the ambiance in the photographs reflect a time and a period, which is obviously past. Do you want to just describe for you what that means, 1965, and, and sort of the feeling of that time? Sure. Well, the cookbook became a fixture in our household and really in the world. I mean, 300,000 copies were sold when it first really? came out. Uh, yeah. Oh, and it became yeah. the eighth most popular out-of-print book of any kind. I mean, Madonna's Sex is number one, and Stephen King is on this list. This book was number eight. So... For me, what was incredible about that era was it was a time of discovery and it was a time of breaking down class distinctions. And that was very important to my dad. He was really a populist. So his idea was that the finer things in life, let's say art, food, were not meant for the elite. He was all about giving people access to what they didn't have otherwise. Tour d'Argent, which I've actually never been to, but it was interesting to look at the menu because you see what was so common in French restaurants at the time. They would take an ingredient, uh, filet de sole or canneton or poulard, and they would have four or five different versions of it, which were simply either different sauces or different additions. So you could see how they constructed a menu to create, you know, 100 things out of maybe 10 things, right? It was it was very right. distinctive way of putting a menu together, which is quite different today. But I thought that was reminded me of those days when different sauces created different dishes. Yeah, you know, I think that was one of the things that really was a transitional moment in American cooking when French sauces became par for the course, you know, in, in home-cooked American cuisine. One of the things that happened in the 50s and 60s was this idea that food wasn't just a protein and... Uh, a starch and a green slapped on a plate. And certainly that's how we ate. My parents, my friends' parents were not like my parents, and my friends all loved coming over to my house to eat. Of course, I just wanted to go to their house to eat or eat at Bob's Big Boy because we ate things like <laughs> ratatouille and shrimp right. curry and all of these things. And, you know, I wanted to eat like a normal kid. I wanted a milkshake. Uh, I grew up in the similar situation where I just wanted to live like a normal kid, but we certainly weren't normal. So he, he actually had, for six weeks on Thames Television, the cooking price-wise with Vincent Price. Have you ever seen a clip of that TV show? It is hilarious. It's like a cross between Julia Child at her funniest and a Lucy episode. Mix it up, stir it up very well, and then the topper is you pour over this 
over the bottom of the spoon very gently some very rich cream so that it will float on top. Nine out of ten times it doesn't work, but this time it all... Yes, it did. Isn't that marvelous? Then you lick the spoon, which is the best part of the whole dish, and then you proceed to drink the brandy. Oh, here's to you. <laughs> the set was just pared down to almost nothing, and there was no one to help him. So at one point, he's taking a turkey out of the oven, and there's literally no place for him to put it. And so he has to put it on the floor, which is hilarious. Another thing that, that brought back my childhood was the Johnny Carson episode with the poached fish in the dishwasher. Yes. I actually remember this. Could you just describe that for people who were not around at the time? Absolutely. So obviously one of Johnny Carson's writers had, had come up with this idea it had been written up somewhere that you can poach a fish in a dishwasher so they thought first of all my dad he's game for anything and obviously the keys are don't put any other dishes and don't put any detergent in there and he said it was delicious and it's funny it's one of the things that is most remembered about my dad oh my god he cooked a fish in a dishwasher after this long career and fame and fortune right exactly he's remembered for poaching a salmon exactly. dishwasher in Johnny Carson Let's just turn to him very briefly, but how did he get into the movies in the way he was portrayed? How did he get associated with that genre? The horror genre? Well, yeah. he made 105 movies, and less than 35 of them were horror films. So that yeah. came later in his life. It came at a very fortuitous time. It came right after he had been gray-listed during the McCarthy era. And, of course, in the McCarthy era, many people were blacklisted. There were many, many more people who were gray-listed, which meant studios were encouraged not to hire them. The list that my dad found himself on was pre-war anti-Nazi sympathizers. So in the minds of McCarthy and his henchmen, that made him a card-carrying communist. So when he got his name cleared after being gray-listed, he finally was offered two roles, and one was in a play, and the other was for a movie, and that movie was House of Wax. And House oh, of yeah. Wax changed his life. So here's my dad getting these gothic horror parts, which really are character parts, and he recognized that he'd been given a gift, and he jumped in with both feet. So let's get back to food. As a child, you said your father was the great pancake maker. Was food something you guys shared? Was it important to you? I was and am still a very finicky eater. And even to the end of his life, he would just look at me thinking, oh, how did I end up with you as my child? Hmm. But we were very, very, very close. I adored him. And our time together in the kitchen when I was a kid was cooking Saturday morning breakfast when he was there. So pancakes and popovers and eggs, and to this day, breakfast is my favorite meal. And it was something we really, really enjoyed. At the end of his life, when he was very, very ill, and it sort of broke his heart because he didn't retain his taste buds, and the only thing that he really enjoyed eating was risotto. And he mm. had gone to Venice and learned how to make risotto from Marcella Hazan, and they had become mm -hmm. great friends. And so he taught me painstakingly how to make a great risotto, and that's what I would make for him. And so mm. after he died, I went to Venice and gave Marcella his cookbook because it just felt like... That was the little final chapter for me. But yes, food was something. He, he loved eating. And, and more than cooking together, although we certainly cooked a lot together, the real joy for us was sharing adventures. And they were always not pretentious adventures. I, I think one of my favorite days I ever spent with him was he decided one day he wanted us to find the best taquito in Los Angeles. So we got in the car, and in those sort of pre-food truck days, the great taquitos were at the little huts by car washes. And so we went from hmm. car wash to car wash eating taquitos. And it wasn't just shoving them down your mouth and going to the next one. It was talking about them. So why was that so good? And then this one had a special sauce, and this had something else that you had to try. Hmm. And it was just an amazing gift that he had to make all of life seem like an adventure. One thing I noticed, I watched him with uh, Wolfgang Puck uh, doing a cooking segment. And it's kind of interesting. You know someone from public uh, sphere, acting, whatever, as one thing. Who, and Vincent Price was always a very dominant 
character in his movies. And then he's on a show where Wolfgang is the expert, right? And the roles are kind of reversed. I, I think really the, the core of it is that my dad was humble his whole life and a perpetual right. student. And so in order to get recipes right, he would cook them over and over and, to my mind as a child, over again. Like ratatouille, it seemed to me, we ate every night for five years. It's funny, in doing my homework for this, ratatouille comes out quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> in your memories. Yes, I felt time. like my entire childhood I was, you know, <laughs> slogging around in a vat of ratatouille. But no, it, it's really that he was a lifelong student. So uh, when you did the preface for this book, I believe you traveled around to go back to many of these places. Did, uh, how many of them were still around and how many did you, did you go back and visit? It's interesting because most of them are still around in Europe. Very few are still around in the United States. And, and what's interesting beyond that is that only in places that have a sense of their own history are they still there. In other words, mm. in New Orleans, they're still there. Sardis is still in New York, but the majority of them are gone, and, and that's really heartbreaking in a way. What I did do was try to have a similar experience. So I was in New Orleans for Mardi Gras, and I was staying at a and b and I was with some people who were from Philadelphia, and I told them what I was doing, and they shared the name of a restaurant in Philadelphia, and they said I should go. I went, and it was one of my favorite restaurants I've eaten at in years. I had the experience of doing what my parents did, which was discovering. So they didn't travel just to sort of tick off things on a bucket list. They really explored the cultures through the cookbook and through all of the things my father did as, a, as sort of, I think, the original American foodie. He celebrated it, and I think that's a wonderful Wonderful way to live. I was just thinking, I hope my kids are, <laughs> after I'm gone, are as nice in my, about my memory as you are to your father. You, you obviously had a wonderful relationship with him, and he was a terrific guy. He was, you know, and was he perfect? Absolutely not. Was he the most interesting person I've ever met in my life? Yes. His passion for life and his generosity of spirit and his desire to shine a light so brightly that it gives other people permission to do the same, if that comes through me at even you know, one-eighth of the wattage that it came through my dad, then I will consider myself fortunate. Ah, that's our meal for today. That is it. Next time that you have a holiday in one of these countries, I really beg of you, don't be afraid of foreign food. Don't be afraid to sample the wonderful things that people have learned to make over the years, because that's the secret of food, tradition. Now, until we eat again, this is Vincent Price saying goodbye to you. And, uh, oh, I forgot. You meant to eat it with your fingers. Well, let's see how that worked. There it is. It's delicious. You know, Danny Kaye was also an actor who turned gourmet. His culinary efforts earned him the Les Meilleurs Ouvres de France, the only non-professional chef ever to receive that award. But his culinary efforts were not always successful. He burned his leg in a culinary accident that left him temporarily wheelchair-bound. In a restaurant in China, he acted out the role of a chicken to order one and got two eggs instead. Danny Kaye and Vincent Price crossed paths on The Danny Kaye Show in 1965 in a skit called Bikini Beach Frankenstein. Vincent, as Dr. Frankenstein, sings a duet with Igor that starts, quote, I'm going to build a monster, build him from the toes on up. That just goes to show that there is a long tradition of food people dressing up and doing silly things on television. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to America's Test Kitchen. Coming up after the break, we taste test sauerkraut, and we also learn how to make the very best ground beef chili. America's Test Kitchen is proudly supported by the employee owners of Bob's Red Mill, purveyors of the widest range of safe and delicious gluten-free baking mixes. Thanks to Bob's Red Mill, going gluten-free doesn't have to mean going without. Cakes, cookies, brownies, muffins, even cornbread— Bob's Red Mill has easy-to-use gluten-free baking mixes for all of them, ensuring your baked goods turn out perfectly every time. You can find all of Bob's Red Mill's gluten-free baking mixes at bobsredmill.com.
I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to America's Test Kitchen. I'm here with our tasting expert, Jack Bishop. Jack, how are you? I'm well, Chris. Sauerkraut? Sauerkraut. No, I actually like sauerkraut. Uh, so do I. Yeah. I mean, I like it better with a hot dog, which I left those behind. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you just have bowls of sauerkraut. Um, you want these to be rich. You know, they're going on something fatty. And so that you want a lot of acidity. You want a lot of salt. You want not to be too crunchy, because if they're too crunchy, they may fall out of the bun and make kind of a mess. The acidity is coming from lactic acid. So there's just salt and cabbage in these. It gets fermented and it creates the natural yeast, its own acidity, and so there's no vinegar in these, which a lot of people think, oh, there's vinegar in sauerkraut, and there isn't. The biggest difference that we found was actually off notes. Chemical, bitter, things that were coming from preservatives. And it turns out that if you buy sauerkraut in the refrigerator case, because refrigeration does a less good job than canning or jarring, they put preservatives in the stuff in the refrigerator oh. case. And that the best place to buy sauerkraut is either uh, in a canned good aisle or in you know a jar. And then they don't have to put any of the preservatives in. And so that was the first thing that seemed really counterintuitive. Because mm. I always think, oh, you know, by the deli section, they're going to have refrigerator sauerkraut, and that's going to be much higher quality than like canned sauerkraut. Not so. Um, our winner came in a jar, and our runner-up came in a can. So um, other thing is, obviously, we had some preferences about the chopping. Some of them seem really nice and even. Some seem kind of sloppy, and you know, the machine kind of butchered the poor cabbage. I'm not sure that that's the biggest deal, especially once it's inside that bun with the hot dog. So anything that you're noticing about these three samples? So the, the only intended use for this cabbage is on a hot dog? You could do it with sausages. I mean, right? You're thinking like a German-style dinner. Um, But in general, it's with some sort of rich meat. You know, I know people who eat sauerkraut by itself, kind of like coleslaw. Um, The kimchi crowd. Yeah, that's a. I like kimchi. I'm not sure I like sauerkraut enough to have it as its own thing. It feels like it needs to be um, with some sort of deli meat or sausage. Yes, I think it does. Now I've been eating it for five (laughs) minutes. I would agree. Uh, Anything that you're noticing about these in terms of texture, in terms of flavor? Yeah, there are three samples. The first ball, it looks greener and also feels like it's not as acidic. It feels fresher to me, which I don't think is a good thing, oddly enough. It also looks like it's less regular in uh, the way it was cut up. I don't really care about that. Yeah, I think our tasters, some of the picky people, made a big point out of that. But the reality is it's sauerkraut. It's not supposed to be that beautiful. And if it's a little irregular, I don't think the world will come to an end. So anything about the other two samples that you're noticing, Chris? There's an odd flavor in the third one. It has a kind of meaty undertone in some strange, like, like it was on a hot dog for a while and then it slid off. Well, remember, these are fermented. And so, you know, bacteria do amazing things to humble cabbage. You can get a little effervescence in some of these, and you can get the creation of all kinds of interesting complex notes. What we didn't like was anything that said, oh, chemicals, bitter. But complexity is not necessarily a bad thing. One more bite. All right, Chris. I don't like the first one. Second and third, I think, are close. There's a slightly odd taste in the number three, so I pick number two. You chose Libby's. Uh, This is our runner-up. It comes from a can, which you would never think, like canned sauerkraut. Um, You liked it. Our tasters liked it. Good job, Chris. The third one, which had a slightly off taste, I thought. Uh, This was our winner. This is Eden Organic. Um, This is jarred. Again, the jars and the cans do a better job of preserving uh, the flavor of the sauerkraut. You know, it wasn't your first choice, but you liked it. And the one that was green... Boar's Head, our tasting panel did not like this. This is one of the ones that's refrigerated, has preservatives so that it can hang out in the refrigerator. And we thought it just couldn't compete with either the Libby's or the Eden. So next time you're cooking up hot dogs in the backyard, buy a jar of Eden organic sauerkraut. That was our winner today in the Test Kitchen. You can listen to today's show at atkradio.com and also on iTunes. Right now, it's time to open up our phone lines, take a few calls, and with me once again is our culinary expert, Bridget Lancaster. Hello, Chris. Are you ready? I sure am. Good. Welcome to America's Test Kitchen. Who's calling? This is Krista. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm pretty good. So how can we help you? I have this recipe. It's supposed to be a lighter version of a vegetable cream sauce pasta dish. And you start out with butter, and you saute the vegetables, and you add a little flour, and then you add chicken broth and some half and half, and you're supposed to let that simmer. 
then add in grated Parmesan cheese. And every time I do it, the Parmesan cheese becomes almost like mozzarella. It sticks to my spoon or it sticks, you know, in a layer on the bottom of the pan. It just clumps up and becomes very stringy. And I've tried to, you know, take it off, let it cool for a bit before I add it or add it in small quantities or add cheaper Parmesan cheese or more expensive. But it always seems to kind of seize up on the spoon. How much cheese? Like maybe a cup. Uh huh. Are you adding it all at once? I've tried to add it slowly, but, you know, usually I use a pretty wide dish, so I spread it all around. But as soon as I go in to stir in the noodles or toss in the noodles, it sticks to my utensil. Yeah, Parmesan's aged. It's a very dry cheese, and the protein structure means that it's not going to melt readily. I mean, Parmesan just basically doesn't melt, especially in a cup. So either you could sprinkle Parmesan a little bit at the end to serve or use a fresher, moister cheese, which will melt. Right, Bridget? Yep. That's a couple of things. You also mentioned that you use chicken stock or some type of stock and cream, either cream or milk or Uh half and a half. So you might want to try taking half of the cheese and mixing it with that dairy before you add it in. And that's going to help prevent it from clumping altogether. And then you can always sprinkle in the rest of the Parmesan afterwards. Yeah, like toss it at the end? Mm-hmm. Nice. Because I was trying to do it more like a mac and cheese when you make like a roux and add it. Mm-hmm. And it always goes in easily. And this seemed like it was always getting very stringy. and. Well, that's because mac and cheese is cheddar. And right. cheddar tends to be young and have a high moisture content and is easy to melt. So mm-hmm. if you did a mac and cheese with just Parmesan, you'd have a similar problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's Fantastic. And another thing that you could try is using, um, instead of all Parmesan, you could add something like an Italian fontina. And that's going to give you a much creamier base, but still have really good tanginess to it. And then finish Mm -hmm. it with the Parmesan. Fantastic. That's a great idea. Good. All right. Well, thank That's my one good much. idea per day, right? <laughs> per day. Everybody per month. needs an improvement. Next month. <laughs> Bridget will be back talk. next month with another yeah, exactly. good idea. Thanks for calling. <laughs> Thanks, Krista. <laughs> Bye. All right. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to America's Test Kitchen. Who's calling? Hi. This is Katie in Los Angeles. Hi, Katie. How are you? I'm good. It's so great to talk to you. You too. <laughs> How can we help you? <laughs> um, well, I've decided that my next big project is going to be deep frying. Hooray! Um, well, this is deep, deep fry central <laughs> now, with Bridget. <laughs> now, I've only deep fried a handful of times. I'd like to use one or two big batches of oil and keep reusing it as many times as possible. So I'd like to know the best kind of all-purpose oil to use, how many uses can I get out of it, and how to store it. But since I'm going to be reusing it, what should I make in what order should I make it so I can kind of use the flavor evolution to my advantage as I go. Well, I'm definitely going to say fish last. I was going to say fish, then donuts. Yes, that that would only work out well. So you already know that when you fry things, some of the flavor of the foods go into the oil itself. So you're right to think about it in stages. I would say that things like French fries, anything that's pretty, you know, it doesn't have a lot of flavor to it, that, that would be great to go first with your oil. Moving on to things like fried chicken, which is, there's just nothing better than actual fried chicken. I'm sorry, this baked fried chicken. There is no such thing as fried chicken in the oven. Uh Uh-uh. Excuse me. No. Cook's Illustrated. No. We've done oven fried chicken. There is no such thing. And you are part of Cook's Illustrated. There is. Were you you a dissenter? There's no such thing. Okay. There is no such thing. (laughs) You were gone that week. Real true fried chicken. That's right. In the fryer. Are you going to fry anything like fritters or donuts or? Yeah. Hush puppies. Yeah, yes, yes. I would keep those separate from any kind of meat and or fish that you're going to fry in because anything that has flour in it really tends to hold on to any flavors that are in the oil. Oh, okay. So I would keep those separated. I mean, the problem with reusing oil, and you can do it a couple of times, maybe up to three times. Peanut oil is my favorite oil for frying. And as long as, you know, nobody has a peanut allergy in your house, that's what I would go with. Canola oil is okay. I find that the more you use canola oil, the more of a kind of off flavor it has. I had palm oil. It was a solid shortening. Right. I got a big five pound mm-hmm. box. Not palm of it. kernel, but palm oil. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's good too. And same about three uses? Yeah. The three main enemies of frying oil are water that comes out from any foods. Salt, which is interesting. If you, you know, season your food, salt can denigrate the oil and temperature. So the higher you get that oil, 
the hotter you heat it, if you get it to a certain point, it really starts to break That's down. That's why peanut oil is good because it's got a what, 450 degree smoke temperature. Right. It's high. So it's starting at a higher point, so you're going to get more uses out of it. Okay. And in between the uses, should I be straining it and refrigerating yes. it? Not a bad idea to refrigerate it, but definitely strain it. Fine mesh strainer, you can put a coffee filter in there too if you want to get every single little bit out. And yeah, have fun frying. I love fried <laughs> foods. And just to clarify, so it's not necessary to refrigerate. Let's say I'm deep frying for three consecutive days. Could I just leave it on the... No, just put it in a, a cool, dark place. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That, that'll okay. be my new cookbook, a cool, dark place. <laughs> a picture of your mind. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, a very, a cool, very dark place. Yeah. Well, I am very excited to get started. Have fun. Yes, good for you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks, Katie. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to America's Test Kitchen. Just a reminder, give us a ring anytime, 855-34-COOKS. One more time, 855-34-COOKS. Or email us at questions at atkradio.com. This is Laura, and I'm from Dartmouth, Mass. My question is about freezing empanadas. Mm -hmm. If the filling is pretty much meat and spices, will they freeze well? Will the texture of the crust be okay? Or should they be frozen before or after cooking? And what's the best way to defrost them? So, yes... No, no, I'm just going to have just going to answer this. <laughs> left, right, left, left, right. Um, absolutely. Empanadas are great to freeze ahead. Almost anything, um, you know, the ground meat. I know we have one that has raisins and eggs in it. It's really, really good. I've frozen that before. What you want to do is after you shape them, you put them on a parchment-lined baking sheet or a large plate, and you can place that in the freezer so that they freeze individually. They're not stuck to each other. And then once they're mm -hmm. fully frozen, you can peel them off of the sheet, put them into a Ziploc lock bag, and you can keep them in there for up to a couple of months, no problem. You don't okay. have to defrost them. You just, can you tell I've done this before? You um, just eat them frozen. Yeah, yeah, you just call them empanada sickle. That doesn't work. Um, when you go to heat them up, you, again, put them on a sheet tray with parchment, brush them with some egg if you want, and you want to cook them about 400 degrees, 425, pretty high, for 25, 30 minutes. Well, they're just dumplings, essentially. They're just dumplings, So yeah. it's the same thing. Oh, One good thing okay. to have is an instant read thermometer for that because you can't see what's going on on the inside. Mm -hmm. So you can just poke one or two and see how the temperature is after about 20 minutes. Supergirl has lost her x-ray vision. Yes. As yes. you get older, that's what happens. Yes, so. yes. I have x-ray bifocals now. <laughs> you used to be able to look right into the hearts of people and, and empanadas. So. No, no more. So, yeah, definitely go yeah. and uh, freeze those empanadas. Yeah, we have a neighbor okay, actually across the street who makes a lot of dumplings. Yummy. And, yeah, there's usually 30 or 40 available at any time. Wow. Just nice. Pop them out of the freezer. Nice. My kind of neighbor. Yeah, was, I'll say. So. <laughs> I'll probably be courting mine, but... <laughs> Good, Good thing to do with them. That's yes. exactly what I would do, too. <laughs> so. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, thank thanks, you. Laura. Welcome to America's Test Kitchen. Who's calling? This is Kat from Texas. How are you? Pretty good. Good. Can we help you? Or how can we help how you? How can we help you? Yes. I make this Korean chicken soup called Samgitang. And essentially what you do is you take this rice that you've soaked for a couple of hours. You stuff it inside of a bird, be it a chicken or a Cornish game hen. You put a jujube, which is like a date, and some ginseng and a bunch of garlic. And you put the whole bird in the water and you boil it for like an hour or so. But my issue is that every time I make this, after I'm done cooking and uh, put everything away and cook again and the burner's on fire <laughs> because of the grease, I guess. I guess my solution would be to take everything apart and clean it, but how about prevention instead? Yeah, I think one of the problems is you're actually boiling the chicken. And in some other places, like in Sichuan, they would take a whole chicken, start it breast side up, simmer it, just a little bubbling for 15 minutes, turn it over breast side down for 10 minutes, and then turn the heat off and let it sit for about 45 minutes. And that way you're not going to get all the bubbling. You'll perfectly cook the chicken. It'll be nice and tender. I would add a tablespoon of kosher salt to it as well. And then you won't have the bubbling. There won't be bubbling over. And then I would just skim. If you see something coming Definitely. to the top, use a skimmer. It has little tiny holes in it. It's round. And just skim it. I make this all the time, and I don't, unless some of the other ingredients from the recipe are creating that extra fat. Also, trim off. 
any extra fat from the chicken before you put it in. But I think it's the boiling that's creating most of the problem. And how much water are you using, like about four quarts? Like a six-quart saucepan. It doesn't go over the top of the chicken. So I don't think it's actually boiling over. You put a lid on it some of the time. I would leave the lid off the whole time, and I would use about four and a half quarts of water, and there should be quite a lot of room in the pot from the top of the water to the top. You should have four or five inches of clearance there. But Uh don't boil it. You want to sub-simmer it for 25 minutes, then turn the heat off, let it sit for 45 minutes. It'll be really, really tender if you do it that way. Yeah, you're definitely overcooking the chicken. An hour of boiling is too much. An hour of vigorously boiling, especially. You're going to definitely get some huge splashes and fat over the side of the pot, but definitely skim, skim, skim. Because the first thing that'll come to the surface is that foam, the collagen, And then Mm -hmm. you'll start to see the fat rising, especially if you do a simmer instead of a boil. When you're boiling any kind of stock, the harder that the liquid boils, the smaller the fat droplets become because they break apart. So it's harder to skim Mm -hmm. them away as they rise to the surface. Another thing to add is a couple cups of sherry or the Chinese use Shaoxing wine, Mm -hmm. but a couple cups of dry sherry in there will also. And that liquid is wonderful. You can cook rice separately using that stock also, which makes great rice. Oh, wow. Well, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for calling. I really appreciate it. Sure. Love your show. Thanks, Kat. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This is America's Test Kitchen. Give us a ring, 855-34-COOKS or 855-342-6657 or email us at questions at atkradio.com. Now it's time for this week's recipe challenge, the best ground beef chili. I'm here with test cook Dan. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. This week's recipe challenge, and I have to say, you're in trouble, (laughs) is the best ground beef chili. Now, we've done chili, you know, 10 or 12 times in the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. We've done ground beef chili at least five or six times, and yet you, you young whippersnapper you, (laughs) you're coming back and saying this is the best why is this the best? I mean, it looks good. It is a pot here, but why is it the best? So it's the best for a number of reasons, Chris, but the first one, the primary one, is that we got the meat right. So ground beef chili, one of the biggest challenges is browning the meat, right? You ever tried brown ground beef? It doesn't work so well, right? It releases a ton of liquid because you have so much cut surface area. So you don't get good browning, you don't get good flavor, or you cook it so long to drive gets, off that it moisture. It's tough. It's tough and it's pebbly. So we figured out a really cool trick, and we actually use a little bit of baking soda and salt, mix with a little bit of water, add it to the beef, and it sits mm. for 20 minutes before we brown it. So the baking soda raises the pH, the alkalinity of the meat, and that actually allows it to hold on to more moisture. So what happens is when we go to brown it, it holds on to the moisture, and it actually browns in the skillet. So this is like brining ground beef, essentially. Same thing holds on to the moisture. Yep, it holds on to moisture, exactly. So it doesn't release it into the pot, and you get really good browning. The higher pH also encourages the Maillard reaction, so you get more browning, just as you would with pretzels. So people just understand, higher pH means less acidity. Exactly. And the higher the pH, the more browning of cookies, anything, right? Yep, Okay. across the board, exactly. Okay, so because we're not quite done with the beef yet. We actually found that a lot of recipes undercooked the ground beef in the recipe. A lot of times you think, oh, it's ground beef, it's small, it doesn't need to cook very long, but ground chuck is still chuck, and chuck still has lots of collagen. So it may take a little less time for it to heat up, but you need to hold it there in that wet, hot environment for long enough for that collagen to break down into gelatin. So we found a full hour and a half, sometimes up to two hours was ideal for this. So I thought when you ground beef, the collagen gets ground into small pieces, which means you don't have to cook it a long time, like a hamburger. Right. So in a hamburger, Chris, we're usually cooking to temperature, so say medium rare, where those those proteins never get a chance to really tighten up and get tough. But with ground beef, we're cooking it well beyond that. So we're cooking to the well-done zone. Once you get there, it's tough. Then in order to get it tender, you've got to cook for longer. So it goes from tender to tough, and then longer means tender again. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So we know about the meat, the baking soda, the long cooking time. Is this the usual, you know, spice drawer dump and mix, (laughs) or are we doing something more interesting? So we do have some ground spices in there. We've got cumin and coriander, some paprika, um, but we use six nice big ancho chilies, Mm. which are really smoky, a lot of depth of flavor. Um, We toast those, tear them into pieces, and we make our own um, This is in a skillet or an oven? So we do this in the Dutch oven that we're going to cook it in. So we toast them until they're soft, uh, we take out the seeds, and we grind them in the food processor to make our own powder. We also add to that a kind of interesting ingredient, which is tortilla chips. So oftentimes you eat tortilla chips uh, with chili. We're actually putting it in there, and it provides a lot of body and uh, some nice earthiness to it. So thickener and a little taste, a little flavor? Exactly. I think it's time to taste. Okay. All right. Now you're ready for it. (laughs) 
I've got some cilantro, lime, and red onion if you'd like to adorn your bowl. You've been going to food, food writing class? <laughs> adorn the bowl? What does that mean? First of all, it's very dark. It's a very dark mahogany color. It's not reddish. That's right. Something you notice. But those ancho chilies mm. are really dark, and then we stir the fat that comes to Boy, the surface back good. in. So you get that flavor. Yeah, everybody who loves true Texas chili with the big pieces mm -hmm. would go, this is wimpy ground beef chili. It's not a wimpy taste at all. It's no. got deep, deep chili flavor. Smoky, rich, nice spice flavor to it. Great depth. So this week's recipe challenge was the best ground beef chili. I was a little suspicious, I have to say. We've done this many times, but I think the baking soda, the six ancho chilies, great depth of flavor, great texture, and great color. Dan, thank you. You're welcome. You know, most scientists until the mid-19th century were amateurs. Michael Faraday invented the electric motor with absolutely no formal education. German native William Herschel was a musician who discovered the planet Uranus. Mary Anning, a seashell collector, convinced the world that dinosaurs actually existed. And Vincent Price was never trained as a chef, but wrote a best-selling cookbook. That's just a reminder that with a little bit of luck and perseverance, the world can be our oyster. Thanks for listening to America's Test Kitchen. If you want to listen to more shows, you can find all of our shows on iTunes. You can also email us anytime at questions at atkradio.com. America's Test Kitchen Radio is produced by America's Test Kitchen in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Production assistant Carly Helmtag. Senior audio engineer Douglas Shugartz. Segment editors Melissa Allison with Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Post-production by Jay Allison and Atlantic Public Media. Production help from Debbie Paddock. Theme music, The Mahotel of Queens. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. America's Test Kitchen is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.